Um, I do want to welcome you to our summer series, uh, Majoring in the Minors. Uh, this is the summer series on the 12 minor prophets, those 12 individuals who come at the end of our Old Testament in that little tiny section. We struggle to say their names, uh, some of them. We certainly don't know who about half of them are, most of us. Um, but this is going to be a real, uh, just a great journey together. If you missed last week, one of the things that, that we decided to do was just to invite the congregation to read along every week. Um, these are fairly short books. And so the idea is you will read along during the week, and then on Sunday we'll uh, talk about the prophet together. So you'll be, you'll be so informed. You'll probably have great questions for me. Um, and we're just going to do them in order, starting today with Hosea, going all the way to Malachi at the end of this. But I do want you to know that this is going to be an epic journey into the depths, uh, the depths of human depravity, um, which is, that's okay, right? We're not going to... Uh, major on sin, we're going to major on grace, but we're going to take a real look at human depravity during this series because, boy, I tell you, Israel is into just about everything as we'll talk about today during this time. But the more important thing is we're going to also take a journey, a greater journey into the epic magnitude of God's love, God's grace, and God's mercy for us. So let me pray for us and then let's launch into Hosea together. Uh, Father, as, as we pause for a moment, um, I just acknowledge after uh, a week of study in this, what a love story this is. Um, God, what an incredible love story. Um, your love for us. I, I just pray that today somehow you give us the grace to mine the depths of this together. But Lord, more importantly, receive your love for us. Father, that, that we would just have an experience of being profoundly loved by you, the God of the universe, who has chosen to be our Father, to love us like that. And so, God, we rejoice. Um, we stand underneath your word today, and we just say, Lord, speak to us. Holy Spirit, move in us. Um, show us who we are, but more importantly, show us who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, now, I promise um, I'm not going to get political, okay? So I'm going to say something, and I don't want you to feel like, oh, no, it's one of these. I'm not going to do that. But I do want to say this. When it comes to our last two presidents, uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden, and see, you can feel the tension just when you even do that. It's so, it's so delicious. But when it comes to our last two presidents, I am extremely confident that very few people in America loved both of them equally well. I just, I feel like I can say that with a lot of confidence. You might have loved one of them. You might not have liked either one of us, but I would bet the farm today, okay? I would bet Greg Johnson's farm, all right? <laughs> that you could, you would have to search high and low, far and wide, before you would find a handful of people who would say, I just can't decide, you know? Equally, just love them both. They're, they are both my guys. Now, I'll say that for a reason, Okay. Um, I say that because regardless of how we feel, and Americans tend to feel very strongly about their, their leaders, um, how we feel about either one of our presidents, whether you go much further back than the last two, I just want you to know there have been much, 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 much worse leaders in human history than anybody who's ever been the president of the United States. Like Jeroboam II, son of Joash, King of northern Israel in the 8th century BCE. 
a man who was a delightful combination of extreme competence and extreme corruption. Now, I'll start with the competency side because, you know, my mother taught me if you're going to say something about something, you know, you should always say the good first. So make sure you get that in there. So, so listen to this guy on the competency side. Um, Jeroboam II was easily one of Israel's greatest kings. Now, here's why. He reigned for 41 years, and he led the nation of Israel into world prominence. I know we often don't think of Israel in those terms today in light of the superpowers, but, but he did this back in this time. As a military leader and a commander-in-chief, Jeroboam II, you know, leading Israel, they conquered one of the world's superpowers. They did. They defeated the Arameans. That's a, that's a big deal if you know anything about world history. He went on to conquer the city of Damascus, which was, it was just unthinkable during that time. And Jeroboam II even enlarged the borders of Israel. That is a tremendous feat when, when a world leader can extend his country's territories. He did all of that. Um, as an economist, Jeroboam II led Israel into ultra-prosperity um, through the olive oil trade, the wine industry, and horse trading. And I'm not, there's no laugh attached to that. Actual horse trading. Um, he, uh, he brought unprecedented wealth to Israel. And you know how it is when a nation gets wealthy. I mean, wealth flows to just more than the leader, the, the upper class you know, I mean, boy, they're doing better. Middle class is doing better. Money is flowing with Jeroboam II. And that resulted in dynamic infrastructure for Israel and modernization. So the man is doing pretty well here on the competency side. Encyclopedia Britannica says this about Jeroboam II. It says, the reign of Jeroboam II saw the greatest success and outward prosperity that Israel had known since the days of Solomon. That is incredible. It's unbelievable. And you know what's coming next. But, but it all went to his head. Um, Jeroboam II became proud, overconfident, utterly corrupt. Um, it started off with exploiting the poor, then oppressing the poor, and then utterly abandoning the poor. He did this as a leader. Um, he was swallowed up personally in materialism, uh, just this lavish luxury. Jeroboam's castle, it just turned into a party all the time. He, he was kind of the party king, really, in, in all of Israel's history. He, he went on to make political alliances in order to preserve his wealth and his strength. He started making political alliances with some of the most evil nations that, that ever existed, for example, like the Assyrians. And then finally, Jeroboam II tried to hedge his bet spiritually by worshiping every god available during the day, finally earning the title that no one wants in the Old Testament. Okay, if you end up in the Old Testament, all right, you do not want the following title that landed on Jeroboam, lands on a few other kings and leaders, but as a man who did evil in the eyes of of the Lord. That's where he ends up. Now, there is an old saying, you've probably heard it before, um, as goes the king, so goes the kingdom. Or, as goes the leader, so goes the nation. So you can tell what happened, this trickled down to the people. The people, you know, that they ended up walking the same path that Jeroboam walked, 
Um, before long, Israel as a nation plunged into a pit of moral and spiritual decay. They began to oppress the poor. They began to exploit the poor. Materialism, greed, uh, just, it, it just ate Israel up. They began to commit grievous sins before God, like adultery and idolatry. And speaking of idolatry, the Israelites even began to worship Baal. Ooh, uh, they, they, uh, they, they fired back up the cult of the golden calf, and they even at the end ended up worshiping Molech. I won't say too much about Molech today because it's Mother's Day, we're family-oriented, but I'll just say these two words that'll give it away, child sacrifice. They, they even fell into this as a nation. So I just want you to understand, okay, in Hosea, because you guys read along with Hosea, uh, some person asked me this week, they said, oh my gosh, this is the first time I'm reading Hosea, what is going on here? I want you to understand that when God speaks to Israel about their sin, and when God, this is a dramatic tale of sin and redemption, understand that God is not upset over chewing gum in class and jaywalking, okay? Um, God is not being petty. He's not being overly rigid. We are talking about a people in Hosea who have utterly forsaken their God. They have chosen a road that will only lead to disaster unless God steps in, unless God moves in some way and draws them back. Israel is going to absolutely self-destruct. And so one day, God rings up his prophet Hosea, and he says to him, Hosea, go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. And so Hosea obeys, and he marries a woman named Gomer. Yes, that is her real name, okay? Golly! No, that's a real name. Um, could not resist that one. Um, but, but he does this, and they have three children. And God tells him to name the children. The first one is a son. Name him Jezreel. And Jezreel is, is the site in, in former times of a bloody massacre. Uh, God, God actually initiates this action, but Jehu takes it way too far, and more blood is spilt, much more than God intended. Name your oldest son Jezreel. The, uh, then along comes a daughter, and God says, name her Lo-Ruhama, which means not loved. And then finally, at the, the end of the family here, uh, another son Name him Lo-Amin, which means not my people. Wow, bleak story, right? Kind of a dark, dark setup here. And by the way, as if all of that weren't bad enough, Gomer then, after having these three children, she walks out on the family. She takes up with another man. You could argue other men very easily from the text. She just walks out. And see, at this point in the story, we all know what should come next. By every civil, legal standard, and by God's standard, Hosea has got grounds for what? Divorce. And this is a divorce where he owes her nothing. She deserves nothing. In fact, for leaving three children, she deserves less than nothing. And yet at this point in the story, God does the unthinkable in chapter 3. God says, Hosea, Go show your love to your wife, Gomer, again. Though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress, love her 
as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. And Hosea tells us exactly what he did. He said, so I paid off her lovers. I bought Gomer back for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. Now, let me explain what that is. Uh, a, a homer and a lethic of barley, that's 430 pounds of barley. So put it together, okay? Money and goods, home, uh, uh, Gomer is, uh, Hosea, I see I keep wanting to say homer, I've been doing this all week, but Hosea is going to pay her lovers this. What does that sound like to y'all? Does that sound like anything? In ancient times, when someone approaches the father uh, to marry a daughter and he brings what? Dowry. Get, get that. I mean, he, the humility in here, the, the generosity, he is paying dowry for his own wife to these adulterous men. This is what he does. And then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way to you. And so what's going on here, because actually the person asked me that, they read that part and went, what is this? What's going on here is Hosea is becoming a living parable. That's what God is having him do. He's, he is literally acting out what has happened between God and Israel. Because the, the action is identical here. What God has done uh, is in times past, God led his people out of, of Israel. I mean, out of Egypt, right? He led them out of slavery. And God took them up on Mount Sinai, and he entered into covenant with them, like, like marriage. Then God gave them the promised land, an abundant life, and then the people walked out on him, and they pledged their love to other gods. And so when we read Hosea's children's name names here, they, they really represent Israel quite well. I mean, blood-stained with guilt, dead in sin, separated from love relationship with God. This is what Israel has become. This is who Israel has become through their sin. So we asked the question of Hosea a minute ago. Let's ask it of God. We said, what should Hosea do? Well, what should God do in this situation? It's pretty easy, right? I mean, put on the smite boots, God, right? Wipe these people out. Divorce them. Be done with them for good. And yet God will do for Israel what he just had Hosea do for Gomer. There's going to be a time of harsh consequences for Israel but that is going to be followed, and that's for their sin, right? Uh, but that's going to be followed by Hosea 3.5. It's going to end up here. God will lead the Israelites back into relationship with himself and with David, their king. They will come trembling to the Lord to his blessings in the last days. So again, just make sure we, we get the picture. Look at what they've done and look at what God's going to do. It's absolutely just, it, it, it is mind-blowing. And by the way, this reference to, you know, relationship to David, their king, this, this is a reference to Jesus Christ. This is pointing to the future how God will do this. Just as Hosea paid for Gomer, God will pay for his sins through his son, Jesus Christ. This is, this is how this is going to happen. The payment is going to be his son's life. And that's going to end up in Hosea 1.10, resulting in this, in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will now once again be called children of the living God. I hope that, I hope that washes over you 
the, the way it did me this week, just studying this. And by the way, the poetic way this is described is humbling and breathtaking. I just want to read this to you. It's so beautiful. Hosea 2, 14 through 17, God speaking, Therefore I am now going to allure Israel. I will lead her into the wilderness, and I will speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards, and I will make the valley of Achor, which is the valley of trouble, I will make it a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, you, Israel, will call me God, my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from your lips. No longer will their names be invoked. And then verse 23, I will show my love to the one I called not my loved. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. Mercy, love, forgiveness, restoration, this is mind-blowing. But what is even more mind-blowing to me, what's more astounding is the heart behind it. God's compassion. I mean, I mean it's not just that God goes, you know, I've got to clean this mess up. It is the love he feels for his people as he does this. And, and again, I'm going to read this to you. Because Hosea says it a whole lot better than Steve Keller can. Listen to this. Hosea 11, 1 through 4, and 8 through, uh, 8, uh, 8 through 11. And again, God speaking. And see this as much as you hear it. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. And that's an endearing name for Israel. It's a love name for Israel. I taught them how to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize that it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. And here it is. How can I give you up? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Israel again, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come from Egypt, trembling like sparrows, from Assyria, fluttering like doves. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. Anyone who's ever been super hard on themselves for their sin, hear that. You know, when we want to say to ourselves, oh, I'll never get over my sin, God will never get over it. Listen, God got over your sin on the cross. And this is the heart that led him to do what he did through Jesus Christ. This is how God feels about all of us. It, it's just amazing that God would do this. It's amazing that God would turn his anger away from us like that. And you might say, no, wait a minute. Hold up. Oh, you're talking about Israel. You just said us. This is us. That, that's the twist of Hosea. Brothers and sisters, we are in Hosea. We are Israel. We 
are Gomer. Every one of us as human beings, we have all sinned and gone astray, just like sheep. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we are the twist in Hosea, and I want to take that we, and I'm going to twist it just a little further here, okay, for just a second. And I want to share, you a, share a story with you. Um, many of you know that when I grew up, um, I grew up in a church for the first 12 years of my life, and then my parents switched to another church. Well, that first church um, that I grew up in, for 12 years of my life, there was no question in that church that the answer was Jesus, Okay. The answer in this church was Jesus. That's a good thing. Uh, the, the problem is that the focus, though, of that church was on the world's sin. And in that church, our pastor would faithfully get up every week and he would preach against the world's sin. You know, he would be astounded and shocked at the world's sin. He would point it out. He would call us to stake our ground and take our stand against the world's sin because the world is sinful. Okay? And there's some truth in that. But, but here's often the problem in the Word of God with that kind of militant them thinking. It's that, that quite often in the world when sin is being talked about, the, the audience is actually us. Notice that when it comes to Hosea. Hosea's focus, though he's speaking about the prevalence of sin, the deadliness of sin, Hosea's focus is sin among the people of God. That's who he's talking to in this passage. His sin, his focus is sin among the people of God and them turning back to God. Now, despite that, notice this. What shines brightest in Hosea and what stands out just above everything else, again, is God's compassion, his mercy, and his beauty. So what we get in Hosea is just this picture of, of God who makes the first move. You know, it's God who comes to his people. And it's just the reality of this father who is so good that he draws his people back home. He deals with their lostness. And so the focus here really is in Hosea, it's the cross. You know, it's, it's about the people of God getting cleansed and having this fresh encounter with God, coming back to life. And then those revived people, those cleansed people, those, those filled to overflowing people going out and being light in a dark world. That's Hosea. That's the point and that's the message. It, it really ends up with God's people being who they were meant to be. Folks who go out into this world and, and man, they, they just share the light of God. They become the attractant. I was in another church one time where we had the great revival verse, and it was right here against on the back wall. We had the great revival verse before the church, and it was this, 2 Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. And in this church, we focused on praying, and we focused on healing of the land, which is really good, but what we missed in that church was if my people called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. That really is the point of Hosea and we don't ever want to miss it, that we 
the people of God have sinned. And we bring deadly consequences on ourselves, and we actually make it much worse out there, but God's love, God's mercy, God's compassion are far more powerful than our sin, which leaves us all poised before the final verse of Hosea 14.9, standing there as Hosea asks us this, who is wise? Let them realize these things. Who is discerning? Let them understand. The ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. Let's pray together. Father, again, we celebrate your love, and Father, we should not be aghast or astounded that sin is a human problem that affects this world and affects your people. And I thank you, Lord, that your grace is what this is all about. It is the grace of God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so, Father, we pray that that for for every one of us here connected to Cornerstone, that, that, God, we would all be a people who are leaning into your heart and your love, that, that God, we would be a people that walk in repentance, that, God, we, we go out into this world cleansed and lit up and filled with your love. I thank you that you have called us to love this world back to yourself, that you have called us to, to pray for people out there and, and just to love them through service and goodness and kindness. And so, God, we pray for your name's sake and, and God, for their sake as well, that we would be that church, that we would be your people. God, just lit up with the goodness, the grace, the love, and the mercy of God. Thank you, Lord, for an incredible love story in Hosea. God, we want to lean into your love, and we want to live in that love. Father, even now as we close, I, I just pray an experience, a fresh experience of your love today for us in Jesus' name.